Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and we've all had a version of this nightmare. It's like you're in college, and it's the day of your final exam, but you haven't been to class the entire year, and you don't know anything, and yet you have to pass this final. And if you are in any kind of profession, there has to be a customized version of the same kind of nightmare. You have to give a big PowerPoint presentation and all the slides are in upside down and you don't know anything and you're going to lose your job. Well, as a broadcaster, I have had, number one, I've had that dream myself many times, especially as a disc jockey, you know, the one where you're on the air and you don't know where the records are and the record is fading out and you don't know where your commercials are. You don't even know how to turn the microphone on. Uh, It's all very nerve rattling. But I have had a number of dreams like this become reality. So I, I thought, Today, I would share some of my misfortune with you because what are podcasts for? Telling you a little bit about the real nightmares that I have experienced in broadcasting. It should be fun for you. Okay, first of all, a few years ago, I was doing fill-in at KABC in Los Angeles. That was a talk radio station. And I got a call from the program director asking if I would work Christmas night. When I was a disc jockey, I would work Christmas all the time because I was Jewish and I really didn't mind working on Christmas. And I know it's a much bigger deal for a number of the other disc jockeys. So I would always work on Christmas. So when the program director asked if I would do Christmas night from 7 to midnight, I said, sure. Why not? Oh, well, I got to the station. There were no commercials whatsoever because who's going to advertise on Christmas night? Plus, try getting a guest. Try getting somebody to give up their Christmas night to talk to you on the radio. Ain't going to happen. But I was able to take calls, right? New. Nobody called. Nobody called. So essentially, I was on the air for five straight hours just talking out of my ass. It was the longest five hours of my life. And something similar to that, way back in the early 80s, I was on another talk station, KMPC in Los Angeles, and they were an all-sports station at the time. And they had the idea, and this was before ESPN, 
but they thought, well, let's do a two-hour, essentially sports center show, where it's kind of like a news show, but all sports. And the anchor would just update you on all of the scores and what was going on, that type of thing. So I got to host that, the KMPC Sports Final from 10 to midnight. So I'm doing this show for about two weeks, and I'm also getting over bronchitis at the time. So uh, it was really kind of a struggle to do two hours a night on the radio. But then it was the baseball strike. (laughs) And suddenly I had nothing to talk about because this was like the end of July, maybe even more like the middle or early part of July. The point is there wasn't NFL football either. And so here was a point where there was no baseball. Football training camps were like two weeks away. Basketball training camps for the NBA were like three months away. College football and basketball didn't exist because it was the summer. And I had two hours every night. Basically, what I would do is take like the same three or four stories and then just repeat them 46 times. I did that for about five weeks. Oh, man, that was great, great radio. The first chance I ever got to do Major League play-by-play was back in 1988 when I was broadcasting for the Syracuse Chiefs, which was the AAA affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays. And one night, the Toronto Blue Jays asked if I would come on and be a guest and do some play-by-play on their radio broadcast. And I'm sure it was because I had been a TV writer, and it was an interesting story. Whatever. I said, sure, fantastic. So I flew up to Toronto, and at the time, they were playing at Old Exhibition Stadium. And I get to the booth, and I meet with their announcers, Tom Cheek and Jerry Howarth. They were very nice and very supportive and worked me in, and I did two innings of radio play-by-play. And actually, I did a very nice job. I was very pleased with my performance. So when it was over, like the fifth inning, I was done. That was it for the rest of the night. And I got tapped on the shoulder. One of the local TV channels had heard about this and thought, well, this might be a good feature story. So they wanted to know if they could interview me. And I said, sure. So they took me up to the roof of the stadium and they set up their camera and they did their interview with me. Meanwhile, the ball game is going on. You're hearing cheers and boos and that sort of thing going on behind you. But at that point, I didn't care. I was done. I did my two innings. I could care less what was going to happen in the ball game. So when that interview was over, someone else came up to me and said, hey, they would like you to go on the Toronto Blue Jay telecast. I thought, oh, okay, sure, that'll be fun. I could talk with Tony Kubek and uh, Don Chevier, who were the 
two announcers for the Blue Jays back then and figure, okay, they're going to ask me questions about the Syracuse Chiefs and what players are coming up, that sort of thing. Like, okay, great. So I go down. They introduce me to Don and Tony, and we sit down. I put on the headset microphone. They go on the air, and I'm introduced by Don Chevier, who says, hey, we have a treat. This is the announcer for our AAA team, the Syracuse Chiefs, Ken Levine. So, Ken, it's all yours. What? Now I'm doing TV play-by-play. And the Toronto Blue Jays telecast back then, I don't know what it's like today, but back then it was a national broadcast. So this was being seen all over Canada. I'm trying to do play-by-play. I don't even know the score. I have no idea what inning this is. I have no idea who's up. And, and I'm calling this game. I had no idea who the pitcher was for Toronto. Remember, they were playing the Angels that day. And at least the Angels, I sort of recognized some of the players. But I didn't know by sight the Toronto Blue Jay players. And I remember saying, so, uh, regarding the pitcher, um, he's still uh, looking pretty good with that curveball. Tony Kubek said, well, yeah, Dave Steeb has a great curveball and blah, blah, blah. Now, oh, okay, Dave Steeb is still out there. And usually when you have a scorecard and you are keeping track of what the players do during the game, then when they come up, you go, well, there's Chili Davis. Chili is one for two, single to left, and fly it out to right. Well, now Chili Davis is coming up there and, well, Chili Davis is up there, and um, yep, there he is. He's up there all right. And I had to look on the scoreboard, you know, like squint and see what inning this was and what the score was. And I somehow managed to cobble together uh, a decent inning of play-by-play, but that was so bizarre because I had no idea what I was doing uh, this was truly the uh, <laughs> the sportscaster's nightmare. And I had a similar thing later, really, just a few years ago. I think this was like 2009. And I was doing Dodger Talk on KABC Radio. And in spring training, they would televise games. And so I got asked to do the play-by-play one of the weekday games. I go, okay, great. So we're out there in Glendale, Arizona. It's the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks. Like a Tuesday afternoon, it's me and my broadcast partner, Steve Lyons. And the Dodgers had farmed out the production to some cheesy local company to where... I had no monitor. I couldn't even see what the audience was seeing. I had like no stage manager. I just had a headset and a director from the truck saying go or instant replay. And this was early on in spring training when each team carried about 70 guys. And there were duplicate numbers 
on several of these guys. And after like the first two innings, all of the regulars, the people you recognize, they were taken out of the game and all of these minor leaguers come in there. And by the seventh inning, we had no idea who was playing this game. And I remember at one point I was told, because I didn't see it, we didn't have a monitor, I was told that they showed the Arizona dugout, which is meant for 20 guys, and there were 60. I mean, this was just like a 1,000 clowns coming out of a Volkswagen. And I said, there's the Arizona dugout, and every player you see there We'll get into the game sometime today. Also, at one point, there was a fly ball to left field. I had no idea who was out there. And I just said, there's a fly ball to left and unidentified Diamondback makes the catch. Later, I just started making up names, you know, just uh, and uh, Babe Ruth is in uh, right field now. And uh, Joe DiMaggio moves from left to center, what difference does it make? So all I could do was have fun with this game. When it was over, my broadcast partner, Steve Lyons, said that was the most difficult game I have ever had to broadcast. And I thought, well, okay, what the hell? Oh, by the way, this was also on the MLB network. So this was Coast to Coast. Well, don't go on social media after you broadcast a game in which you're basically tap dancing for three hours. The Arizona Diamondback blogs just buried me. Oh, my God. Who the fuck is this Ken Levine? He knows nothing about our team. How is this guy broadcasting for the Dodgers? They just crushed me. And eh, (laughs) they were probably right. A few years ago, I got a chance to host the Neil Simon Film Festival on Turner Classic Movies. They flew me to Atlanta, and I had prepared all of my intros and outros, and they put them all on a teleprompter. And I had never used a teleprompter before. And there's a bit of a learning curve with that. They knew that going in. But the teleprompter, in case you have never seen one, basically there is just a screen on the front of the camera lens. The camera lens sees right through it. But when you're staring into the camera, you are reading the teleprompter. So I'm standing on the set. They tell me where to stand. And they set up the camera. And I'm looking at the camera and I'm going, oh, okay, this is no problem. I can see the teleprompter. I can read off of this. This will be fine. But they said, we want to start the segment by having the camera on a crane and having a big wide shot of you. And then the camera will slowly come back down and get a tighter shot. Okay. You know, I'm not used to any of this. Whatever. So the camera goes back on the crane. And in its starting position, now the teleprompter 
Looks like a postage stamp. There's no way I could read that. So basically what I had to do was kind of ad lib until the camera got close enough and then try to somehow finesse back into the script. Uh, there are a couple of intros that I'm just awful. <laughs> it, it took me a while to be able to figure it out. And we recorded a whole month's worth in one day. And of course, if you screw up something on the radio, if you're recording it, say, you're recording a commercial and you screw up in the radio, well, so what? No one's going to hear it. No one's going to be in the room except you, maybe an engineer, but most of the time just you. But when you screw something up on a television set, well, there's 15 crew people. And you have to do it again, and they're all going, Jesus Christ, where'd they get this idiot? I'm not going to be home until 8 o'clock tonight. So when you screw up, you screw up in front of an entire crew. Yeah, that was really fun, too. When I first got a chance to do the Mariners, this is 1992, another spring training story, the Angels were playing in Palm Springs, back then. So we drove to Palm Springs to do a preseason game. And the press box in the Palm Springs Stadium, it's a tiny stadium, but the press box had only two booths reserved for broadcasters. You figure one for the home team radio and one for the road team radio. Well, the home team angels were televising that day. So the Angels used both of the booths. So what are they going to do with us? (laughs) They set up tables in the stands. So picture this. I'm sitting at a table and I'm on the aisle and next to me is our engineer And to his left is our other broadcaster, Dave Niehaus. We're calling this game, and there are fans sitting in the row below us. So if one of the fans gets up and needs to go to the bathroom and shimmy his way down the row, I'm completely blocked. Or if fans are excited over a hit and just want to leap to their feet, I'm completely blocked. That was bad enough. But at one point, I'm calling the game. And by the way, like I said, this was my first year with the Mariners. So Seattle and Mariner fans were really hearing me for the first time. Obviously, I wanted to be at my best. Well, it's like the seventh inning, and I'm calling this play. And I get a tap on the right shoulder. And I glance over. It's a concession guy selling malts. So this vendor hands me the malt to pass down the aisle. So I do. And I'm calling the game, you know, down the left field line, into the corner. He goes around first, heads to second, bobbled in the outfield another tap on my left shoulder and the money comes by. So I'm passing the money over to the right. 
I continue to call the play. There's the throw into second. He dives. He is safe. Another tap. The change comes back down the aisle, calling a major league baseball game from the stands. I had a game in Seattle at the Kingdom. This was rather bizarre. This was, I think, the final game of the 1992 season. But we noticed that sitting in the stands right below us was a gentleman who had to be at least 500 pounds. At least 500 pounds. I mean, he basically took up three chairs. Call in the game, and all of a sudden, I sense there's some commotion going on below me. And I look down, and the people around this guy are scurrying and running up the aisles. Something's going on. And the guy is just flopped over the chair. It does not look like he's conscious. So down come the paramedics. Meanwhile, I'm calling the game. Uh, Here's uh, Edgar Martinez, now two for three, takes a pitch low, one ball and no strikes. And the paramedics come down with a stretcher to take this guy up. Apparently he had a heart attack, but there's no way to lift him onto the stretcher. So what they do, and this is in full view of everybody in the stands and me in the broadcast booth, what they do is they get out that, like, huge needle and they just, like, plunge it into the guy's heart. Like I said, they're, they're doing this out in the open. And I'm still, you know, it's foul ball down the right field line, out of play, one and two. Uh, Martinez, who singled in the third inning, is uh, two for three today. <sighs> well, the guy didn't make it. Now they bring down like several stretchers because what are you going to do? You're going to have a dead guy sitting in the stands for three innings. So now they had to bring down these like special stretchers and they're like six guys like lifting this 500 pound guy into the stretcher. (laughs) Yeah, that was a fun game to call. When I was with the Orioles in 1991, One of the features that the Orioles provided for all of their affiliate radio stations was that if there was a delay for any reason, like a rain delay, that we would keep it. And that one of the announcers, namely me, would host Orioles talk. I would take calls from listeners. And the big advantage there is that these radio affiliates didn't have to worry that, okay, uh, there's a rain delay, so now we're going to throw it back to your local affiliates and they have to figure out what they want to do, how to program it. They have to have an announcer on duty, that type of thing. No, no, it was easy. All they had to do was hire some high school kid to watch the meters And the minute the Orioles went on the air, then they were sitting pretty until we signed off after the postgame show. So, like I said, I was the one that had to do Orioles talk. 
usually due to rain delays. And in a number of these stadiums, the booth was not well shielded from the elements. I can remember two in particular, Detroit and Chicago, where I'm calling Orioles talk, and the rain just coming in in sheets, just drilling me for like two hours. That was really fun. We're taking calls, but there were no computers back then. So they uh, would call the engineer from the station, and he would write down the names on little scraps of paper and hand them to me. And, of course, the minute a raindrop hit one of these scraps, the name just became blurred. So it's like, okay, uh, we're taking our next call here on WBAL. This is... um, Laura, Leo, Lanny. Uh, Yeah, that was really fun. There was one time, it was late in the season, very late in the season, when a team would go into a city for the final time and there was a rain delay and you knew that the road team was not coming back for the rest of the season, they would wait it out as long as they possibly could. Now, if there's a rain delay in April, they say, all right, we'll just call the game, and when the team comes back in August, you'll play a doubleheader on August 17th, and that'll do it. But if it's September 24th, and it's the last meeting of the year between the Orioles and the Red Sox, as it was, there's going to be no other way of playing these games than to just wait out the rain. So we had a series with the Red Sox, as I said, and the first game got rained out. So I said, okay, we're going to do a doubleheader for the final two games. Five o'clock is when the first game is supposed to start. So at 4.30, we go on the air with Orioles warm-up. It's going to be a doubleheader. Well, start raining. So game one was delayed. I did Orioles talk for four hours. Four hours. Then we started playing and finished out the doubleheader. Bear in mind, the Orioles had been eliminated by this time, and I think the Red Sox had been eliminated as well. So these were two absolutely meaningless games calling these these games and and I and I went on the air by the third inning to do mine and and I just said hey um uh all of my good a- anecdotes uh you've heard them already you heard them three hours ago so don't expect me to be scintillating tonight so we do the double header which gets done about 3 o'clock in the morning. By, I'd say, the second inning of game one, there was 15 people in the stands. I mean, four hour, who's going to sit for a four-hour rain delay to see meaningless games? So everybody left. There weren't that many people there to start with. And they all left. So we're doing this game. And, I mean, if somebody tries to steal second base and the umpire yells safe from second base, I can hear it from the broadcast booth. Like, that's how quiet that stadium was. When 
the doubleheader was over at three in the morning, I had to do a half hour postgame show. <laughs> Usually part of the postgame show is an interview with a player. Yeah, good luck getting a player at 3.10 in the morning to be my interviewed guest. That was maybe the longest doubleheader of all time for me. When I was doing Dodger Talk on XTRA, this was in the late 90s, they decided, you know, it would be fun to do a remote to do Dodger Talk from a different location. And Ben Maller and I were the co-hosts. Ben is now a commentator on Fox Sports Radio and has done very well for himself. Uh, But one day he and I go out to Orange County to some Nissan dealer and they set up the table. And of course, no one comes to watch a couple of idiots just sitting there at a card table with a couple of microphones. And right next door was some garden, and the gardeners were there with leaf blowers, those loud leaf blowers. That was going for a half an hour. What a great broadcast that was. Later, when I hosted Dodger Talk on KABC, they got the great idea of doing live remotes for post-game Dodger Talk at the Dodger Dugout Club. There were a couple of clubs where fans, if they didn't want to just go to the parking lot, they could just go to basically these bars. And so we would try to do Dodger Talk from these bars. And it always sounded like crap. And it was hard to hear the callers and the fans were really rowdy and they would be screaming obscenities at us, that type of thing. You know, you sit somebody in a seat at a ball game and just pour beer down his gullet for three hours and then send him off to a bar. Good luck. So we complained. We complained to the Dodgers that this was really bad-sounding radio. And they resisted. They said, no, no, it sounds okay. And we said, okay, come and observe for yourself what a clusterfuck this is. So their PR director shows up after the game one Friday night for post-game Dodger talk from the Dodger dugout club and a giant brawl (laughs) erupts. All these fans, and I mean, it's like out of one of those cowboy westerns in the saloon where people are just leaping on people and just swinging wildly at at strangers. It was this giant brawl. They had to call security. Meanwhile, we're doing the scoreboard and doing Dodger talk. <laughs> that was the end of our Dodger talk live remotes. The first night that I was on WDRQ in Detroit, I go on the air and I have a a girl who would answer my request lines 
and would also give me the names of winners and things. You know, I'd have a contest like, uh, okay, we're going to give away this album, this Stevie Wonder album for the third call at 888-122-5555, whatever the phone number was. So I'd do that on the air, and then people would call, and then in another room, the girl would take down the information of the winner and bring in the sheet, for me to read on the air. She would bring it in like four seconds before I was supposed to go on the air. I don't know why it took her so long to write someone's name, but she did. So I would go on the air and I would go, okay, WDRQ, congratulates our latest winner, Susie Cream Cheese of, and there's all these bizarre names of cities, suburban areas in the Detroit area. So I'm looking like an idiot going, okay, congratulations to Susie Cream Cheese of Hamtramck was the name of the city, which I botched 15 different ways. And there was uh, another one. So I, you know, my first night on the air and I sound like an idiot. I clearly, I've never been to Detroit before. And there was a winner from G-R-A-T-I-O-T. So I go, and uh, congratulations to Susie Cream Cheese from Gradiate. And they said, uh, no, it's pronounced Gratiot. Really? Gratiot? Needless to say, I had requests from Gratiot. I was calling that name 14 times every show. My final story is a cautionary tale. And this is when I was doing weekends at a radio station in San Diego called B100, KFM, BFM in San Diego. And I would do Saturday afternoons from 3 to 7 and then come back and do noon to 4 on Sunday. Those are my two shifts. And I would fly into San Diego. Station had a deal with an airline, so I would just fly into San Diego. I would do my show on Saturday afternoon. And then the program director, Bobby Rich, and I would go out and have dinner and have a few drinks and have a few more drinks. And one night, I made the mistake of mixing up my liquor, drinking beer, and then we went to a place and I had tequila sunrises, which if you've ever had those are sticky, sweet drinks. Well, 3 o'clock in the morning, I wake up and I am sicker than any dog you have ever seen. I spend the rest of the night on my knees yodeling in the Porcelain Canyon. Now I have to go back on the air and I am so Hungover. And this was one of those high energy radio stations, B100 FM with Better Boogie. Yeah. And oh my God, I, I, you know, I stagger into the station. I couldn't eat anything for breakfast. And I, I got like a, a V8 out of the vending machine. I figure maybe that'll help. No, that just made me sicker. So I walk into the studio. And the disc jockey who had been on, who I was relieving, was a guy who had been an alcoholic. And he took one look at me 
and laughed because he recognized exactly the predicament that I was in. And he suggested, get a beer. Like, what? He says, drink a beer. It's called Hair of the Dog. Well, the last thing I would want would be a beer. I said, uh, no, no, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. He goes, okay. He says, I woke up looking like that every day for five years. I know what I'm talking about. I'm like, oh, I, I, I can't have a beer. So I go on the air and he leaves. And 10 minutes later, he comes back into the studio and he just plops down a can of Budweiser and leaves again. So now this Budweiser is just sitting on the council, staring at me. After 45 minutes on the air, I am so wrecked. I will try anything. So I popped open the Budweiser and I drank half a can. And I have to say within 10 minutes, it's like the hangover just lifted. I didn't feel great, certainly, but I guess it neutralizes electrolytes. I don't know why it worked, but it did. And I was able to somehow stagger through the rest of the show. And it was a lesson learned that was the last time in my life that I have gotten that stinking drunk. So those are, actually I have more, but those are enough of, of my nightmarish broadcast experiences. And that will do it for this week on Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce and Jason Miller. I have an email address if you want to get in touch. That would be hollywoodlevine at outlook.com, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter at Ken Levine. You can also follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. I post fun pictures from time to time. And as always, I would like a five-star review if you could see it in your heart. I mean, you know, I went on the radio drunk for you people. And uh, and that's it. I will talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and the fun.